0: 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And our title is Joy Should Never Fail. Joy should never fail for the Christian believer, given this mighty privilege of joy in the Lord says the Apostle Paul rejoice in the Lord always and here it is in First Peter chapter 1 and verse 8 now without recapitulating we notice that in verse 8 Peter has moved to the present tense whom having not seen ye love in whom though now You see him not. So he's moved from the end of verse 7 at the appearing of Jesus Christ, but he's come back to the present at the time that he writes. And he writes, and his recipients have not seen Christ as he, Peter, has seen him, whom having not seen. Peter has seen him certainly, He is an apostle, one of the disciples. He followed the Lord closely. He, by the Holy Spirit, has been enabled to remember all that he said and did. But he addresses them, whom having not seen, you love. In whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable And full of glory. So while they do not see Christ, they know enough about Him and have experienced enough of Him to love Him deeply and to be so indebted to Him that they're filled with a joy which is unspeakable in our King James Version, inexpressible. It cannot be put into words. This Christian joy is quite different from moments of great happiness in the normal way of things. They may pass. You may see something that fills you with awe and amazement and delight and you have a tremendous wave of pleasure, call it joy if you will. But as soon as that view has passed, as soon as you're no longer looking at that sight or the moment of surprise and wonder has passed, then it speedily becomes just a monochrome memory rather than an event of joy. And so with so many things, there is nothing in life to be compared with quite the joy, the happiness, that is given as a gift to converted believers in Christ. It endures, it even endures in times of deep trial and temptation and sadness and grief and loss, shock and fear, alongside these experiences, which cannot be obliterated or ignored, but alongside them there can continue this strange joy, this hope and joy in Christ. It's something which cannot be described in human terms. It is an inexpressible joy. It defies normal understanding. And yet it must be maintained by us. There is something to be done. It must be so valued so treasured and certain things must be done to keep it there rather than to allow it to be eclipsed by anything eclipsed by something which momentarily becomes more important than Christ more important than grace and the blessings of God and being a child of God and being heaven-bound and being in his care and in his power and under his coaching and direction. Something eclipses that astonishing. Yet it does. And this is what we shall be considering. Whom having not seen, like the apostles, you love. In whom, though now you see him not, why does Peter repeat himself? He wants to get that now in. He is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Whom now you see him not, it's necessary to put that in because we will see him when he comes or if we die before then, so to speak, when he comes for us, we shall see him in his glory. It's only now we don't see him. If we were not those who witnessed his life on earth, then it's only now, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now for the moment you see him not, yet believing. Ah, this is how we see him. With the eye of faith we see him. We see him as it were not Visualizing him, but we see him and his qualities and his attributes and his amazing loving-kindness and his person and work in our mind's eye. And we love him more than anything else in this world, whom having not seen literally, ye love, in whom now you see him not, though now you see him not yet believing. Through faith, through believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable, inexpressible, indescribable and full of glory, of worth, of weight, which we ascribe to him. We give him all the weight and worth and glory and credit for everything. So that is the verse, but how do you see him? Well, before we go any further, there are a number of ways in which you see him. You see Christ, and you must see him here, in the promises. Yes, but we have the New Testament. We have the record of his life on earth. What do we need the promises for? Yes, it's true. In the promises of God in the Old Testament, Christ is somewhat veiled. He's never fully revealed, but he's more revealed to those who read the Old Testament with New Testament understanding than he was to the readers of those Old Testament times. It still means much to us. You won't see him as wonderfully as you might if you don't take trouble to see him, even in the outmoded promises and types and shadows of the Old Testament. I used to wonder about this, and very foolishly. I used to think to myself, why study the types of the Old Testament, the types in the worship, and the types that were given, and the pictures of Christ, when we have the reality when we have his life and work fully open to us. Oh, but there are treasures in the types and certainly in the promises. We see him in the theophanies. So we love to read the Old Testament, the appearances of Christ. Wherever you read in the books of Moses, and the angel of the Lord appeared, that's Christ. It's a theophany. It's an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ to comfort, to reveal, to teach, to strengthen. And we see the way he goes about it and the things that he says. While we see him living in the theophanies, the types and the shadows, Joseph, type of Christ, We teach it to the Sunday school children, the life of Joseph and his sufferings and then his emancipation and his rule. And we see Christ in the life of Joseph and the amazing things that were accomplished and achieved through his suffering and so on. And we love to see these things. The Christian is building up his view of Christ by faith, even in the Old Testament. But of course, not only in the great prophets, not only in Isaiah 53, and all those wonderful prophecies of the only historic figure, and I frequently repeat this, in the history of mankind who has ever been prophesied, Jesus Christ the Lord, And prophesied innumerable times in great detail as to his birth, his person, his character, his works, his greatest work, his suffering and death on Calvary, his resurrection and his ascension, the prophecies. We see him there, but we see him, of course, in the Gospels. We love to read and study the Gospels. Even veteran Christians, even those who have been believers 60, 70 years, love the Gospels because we have a view of Christ and we appreciate everything we read of him and all his attributes and his love and his tirelessness for souls and his personal dealings with his own at his wonderful power and miracles and we pause and we marvel and we praise him and we love him for everything that we read and we read through his life we read through his compassionate miracles we read through the tirelessness of his journeys We see how he would go here and there and then carry out a great detour for the sake of one recorded healing or encounter. And we say, that's our Savior, the lengths to which he will go for one single sheep, the boundaries he will cross and what he will endure for each one. We see a lesson in every event of salvation, but we see a a lesson about Christ and his glorious person and attitude and work. And then we see it, of course, in his sufferings and in his death. And we see how far he would go in his great love for those whom he was determined to save. We saw his mighty condensation, condescension you think of the humility of Christ humility in almighty God it doesn't seem to match the terms and yet you see the everlasting eternal son of God equal with the father coming down 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 into the world and entering into human flesh where he could suffer where he could be insulted where he could know great humiliation, where his holy soul would be bared to all the ugliness and treachery of human life. And you think, what humility, infinitely beyond anything that we can value on earth, the amazing Son of God incarnate. We track him and trace him, and the more we intelligently look at these things the more we love him. And then we think he did all that for us, for me. As Watts used to say in his hymns, for a worm such as I, he did all that. And how can we not love him increasingly? Then we think of his resurrection and we love him for his mighty power. No one in the world could do that except the God-man, Jesus Christ. And we see his resurrection appearances. It's wonderful to read about them and just to pause and to think, look how familiar he is with his disciples, how kind he is to them, how he will even cook for them and provide for them on the seashore, how he speaks to them and what love he shows to them but he's the risen Lord. And it shows us that he would do all that, that even in eternal glory, when he's King of kings and Lord of lords, the immeasurable, glorified Christ, he will show familiarity and loving kindness to each one of his own. We've seen it in the resurrection appearances. The kindness and the personal familiarity that he will exhibit. Then the ascension, and we see his mighty power and his care of the early church, and his revealing of himself and his miraculous power through the apostles, and the wonder of the expansion of the church. Then you see his love in his dealings with us, in our personal salvation and the patience he showed and you think back to your testimony and you think of the time it took in many many cases for us to be saved and you think of the time over which we first heard the word the gospel we first heard words of pleading to us to turn to Christ we first heard the arguments And we felt the touch and we were moved and we were drawn and yet so proud were we and so obstinate and so resistant and so sinful we resisted and resisted and resisted. And why did not God just discard us and judge us on the spot for our shallowness and foolishness and unappreciativeness and terrible conceit and waywardness But no, in great gentleness, he continued to draw us and to call us. And we say, as we look back, what a saviour we have. How astonishing, his love and his patience and his long-suffering and his kindness. Never on earth do we see such things. So we love him. And we feel great indebtedness to him. And then we see the way he keeps us as Christians through so many falls and so many failings. and yet he's ever with us and near us and at our hand and hearing our every cry. Well, by the, this is how we see him, with the eye of faith. And we pause and consider these things often. We reflect, we review, we praise and we think. And these are duties because although joy is God-given, we have a duty to keep it alive. And this is here in this text. Whom having not seen, ye love. as an active component there for us in whom though now you see him not, you will, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable, inexpressible, and full of glory, glory to him. Give him the worth and the glory and the praise as you admire him. Well, I'd like to continue into verses 9, 10, 11 just briefly and then the Apostle comes right back to the point and particularly in verse 13 where you get the great exhortation. But look at verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Well, friends, if verse 7... Went forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ. And verse 8. Came back to the present. Whom right now you love. Because you see him with the eye of faith. Verse 9. Joins both together. Receiving the end of your faith. You receive it now. The end point. The purpose. The object. The goal of your faith. Is salvation you've received it now but you'll receive it completely and fully when you enter glory receiving the end of your faith even the salvation of your souls and verse 10 and there's a purpose in this digression which will take place of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. The translators have provided us with some italicized words. They're not in the original Greek, but they help make the point, which is intended by the original Greek. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. In the gospel age, the gospel would be preached, And you would be converted. You would receive this grace. And then at the end of life's journey, you enter the eternal glory. But what is intended by this digression? It continues for a moment in verse 11, searching the prophets, searching what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Why does the Apostle Peter begin to talk about this? The prophets who prophesied of Christ and the grace of Christ and the work of Christ missed something. What did they miss? Verse 11, searching what or what manner of time Christ would come when would he come and in precisely what form would he come and what exactly would he do to bear away sin Isaiah gets pretty near to it but none of the prophets were told the details and certainly they were not told the when so here they are you can imagine Isaiah and Jeremiah and others searching their own prophecies to see if they'd missed something. As the saying goes, they taught something much fuller than they knew. They knew a great deal, but not the details and certainly not the when. And this is mentioned by Peter because What he's effectively saying to us is this how privileged we are in New Testament times, in the age of the gospel, the age of the church. How very privileged. Even the greatest of the prophets didn't see as clearly as we see. They knew Messiah was coming, they knew he would take away sin. It was in this they trusted. All the sacrifices of old pointed forward to this. God would make a way. Repent of your sin. He will forgive you. Messiah is coming. He will actually do the great work of intercession and the mediatorial redemptive work. Trust in God's provision in Messiah. But they didn't see it. How privileged we are. Now we live in a blaze of sunshine, of truth. We see it all, the life of Christ and his suffering and death. So while you don't see him, how much you should love him. Think of the Old Testament saints. They didn't see him and they didn't have as much information. And they loved him and many of them died for him the prophets how much more we see him and should love him that's the purpose behind the digression of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently verse 11 searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did signify by the way did you notice those words in verse 11 what manner of time the spirit of christ which was in them did signify the apostle peter under inspiration just slips that in never forget christ was the author of the old testament the spirit of christ which was in them christ was the order the author of the old testament That's why when we read the Old Testament and we read a prophet or we read the books of Moses, we don't say, like we do if we're analysing human literature, we don't say, I must find out about the author of this book of the Bible. I must find out about Isaiah or Jeremiah because like human authors, they will have been influenced by their childhood and what they learned when they grew up or what historic events they witnessed. And this will colour their writings and help us to understand what they mean. We don't analyse divine literature like that in a humanistic way as we would if we were studying Shakespeare or anyone else in time because Isaiah wasn't the author, ultimately, and Jeremiah wasn't the author. The Spirit of Christ, which was in them, spoke. Christ was the divine author of it all. So we don't stoop to human technicalities in the interpretation of the Bible. Many try to. It's absurd, and it leads them astray. This is like no other book. Searching what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when that Spirit testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Verse 12, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, the Gospel-age believers... They did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them. Peter was one of them that preached to this group of churches in Turkey. By them that have preached the gospel unto you, and it would have been no good human beings preaching the gospel with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. The Spirit applied it to hearts. But then another point at the end of verse 12 not only are you gospel age Christians far better off than the Old Testament saints even the noblest of them you're better off than the angels look at this tailpiece in verse 12 which things the angels desire to look into better off than the Old Testament heroes of faith better off than the angels so much information and light and understanding of Christ such a clear view of him to our faith how much we should love him and we should never let go of the joy that that gives us never that's the point so the the digression is to challenge us and show us how well off we are as New Testament Christians, whatever trials we may go through. The angels can't tell the future. In heaven, they know the theory of the way of salvation, but they gaze down to earth to look at the Christian church and the conversion of millions and the changing of their hearts to really understand the ways of grace. And to marvel at them. They wait for it to happen. And if the good angels, the holy angels, can't tell the future, the fallen angels, even less so, they can't tell the future. Don't think the devil in his tempting of you and the demons of darkness can read your mind and know your future. They can't. But that's another subject. Defends this reasoning is just to underscore our tremendous privileges. Now, the Puritans had very profound views of uh, this matter of Christian joy, and many of them particularly focused on the loss of joy in the Christian life, and they divided the loss of joy, or if you like, depression in the Christian, and times of sadness. They divided it really into uh, that which comes from illness. Well, they said it all came in some sense from illness, but that which comes from serious illness. And that those causes of depression or loss of joy, which actually are our faults. As Christians, something has gone wrong. And there has come about a season of um, spiritual darkness or gloom or depression because something has eclipsed Christ. They were pastoral realists, the Puritans, in all their sympathy. Perhaps the greatest Puritan work on depression was a relatively brief work by Richard Baxter and that uh, came from a sermon preached in 1672 not very far from here at the church of St. Giles' Cripplegate which is in the middle of the Barbican in the city of London. St. Giles' Cripplegate is one of very very few medieval churches that has survived to this day in London, survived the bombing and so on, all the way round it. It may have survived. Unfortunately, its spiritual light doesn't survive so well. But it was there that the minister at that time, a famous, well, one of the most accomplished Puritans, Dr. Samuel Annesley. he was the rector at that time, And he started something called the Cripplegate Morning Exercises, which was a daily sermon, very early in the morning. And that church, which was very large in those days, would be packed to suffocation. And great Puritan preachers would come and preach at the beginning of the day. On the Monday of this particular week, John Owen was the preacher. On the next day, it was Richard Baxter. The causes of melancholy and, uh, and uh, overmuch sorrow, the causes of melancholy and overmuch sorrow, and its cure by faith. That was the title of the sermon. It is still published today by several publishers. It's about 60 pages long. I estimated the sermon must have taken about two and a half hours to preach. A friend of mine said four hours. No, I don't think people had to go to work, even though it started early. With the exception of a few comments on the physical causes of depression, which were all about humours of the blood and ancient Greek nonsense, which is no longer Uh, taken seriously however with that exception uh, Richard Baxter begins to tackle depression and he starts with all the causes that are down to us something has eclipsed Christ there is uh, something we can't have there is a source of grief which has become too big too important to us something we're impatient for, something we want, maybe materialistic, maybe with regards to relationships, whatever. He lists them all. All the possible reasons why we have gone wrong. By the way, in Puritan days when you spoke about the cure of melancholy, was their word, the cure of depression. They meant that word in the Latin sense. They didn't mean it as we do today. Cure tends to mean healing of, removal of. But the Latin is care. The care of depression and overmuch sorrow. That's the meaning of the term. It's a work which should be read by all pastors and workers with people giving comfort and help in times of depression. It's brilliant to this day, without exception. There is self-examination to be done. We had a prime minister once. This is a completely non-political comment, by the way. In the early 70s, this prime minister for four or five years, I think four, could have been five and then he lost an election. And soon after that uh, uh, he was replaced as leader of his party. And from that time to the end of his life, which was around 2004, 2005, for 30 years, he went through what even his favorable biographer called the incredible sulk, and did he sulk. And he had a public platform, and whenever he spoke, he was attacking his successor, who became prime minister for a long time. I'm not into politics, but he would attack her. The incredible sulk. And I remember being on an underground train and somebody opened a paper, and there was a big picture of this ex prime minister inside. And his travelling companion looked at the picture and said very loudly, Oh, that big baby boy. And you wonder perhaps he was a very strong willed lad as a little infant. And perhaps he'd been even, because this can be the case, manipulative with his sulks when he was a baby and he'd made a great discovery that if he sulked long enough I'm not saying this is a fact, this is a possibility day after day then ultimately an exhausted mum or dad is likely to give way and this maybe became a technique and when he was an adult man of great skill and ability in his sphere, and greatly successful, and he gained power. He never got over his childhood tendencies. Maybe spoilt baby boy was the explanation. Who knows? Don't let any of us as Christians be like that. Living with depression, it may be an illness. Well, we have every sympathy for that. But it may be us. Something has eclipsed Christ. Something has taken away the high esteem in which we hold him. And the sense of wonder at having the treasures of heaven and life and eternity and the blessings of Christ every day. Something has taken it from our mind. And the Puritans dealt with that also, to challenge us and to help us. And I think this is where Peter is going. Because look, in verse 6, and I'm coming now to conclusion, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season if need be, ye are in heaviness, suffering, through manifold, various Temptations read trials that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now, ye see him not, yet believing, seeing him with the eye of faith, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And then the digression of which salvation, verse 10, the prophets. And that little tailpiece on verse 12, which things the angels desire to look into. You are better off than the prophets and the angels. So now the big exhortation. Verse 13, wherefore, wherefore, in the light of all this, gird up the loins of your mind gather those long garments that would trip you up around you pull yourself together view your savior be sober watchful and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of jesus christ that's the conclusion of this line of thought christian joy If it's eclipsed, do try girding up the loins of your mind. Think, review, revise, praise God and revive your Christian joy and God will always help you.